Uh, I want to celebrate for a second, too. We had a great time last Sunday evening at the party at the farm, our party on the farm at the James's house. And if, uh, if you missed that, you missed that. And uh, I encourage you next year, if, if they let us do it again, they haven't told us yes or no yet. But uh, if they let us do it again, make sure you make that a, a priority. Just a good time just to get together and hang out, eat hot dogs, make s'mores, take a hayride, and uh, be warm. And so that was really, really fun. Um, also, I've been encouraged, and, and we're going to start doing this more frequently, uh, of just hearing the stories that many of you have shared with me this morning uh, about how you've been able to share your faith with people this week or uh, invite folks to church or begin that spiritual conversation with somebody. And uh, we're really praying through early next year, um, doing some, some more teaching and training on really how to create what we call God space in everyday conversation, not an evangelism method, but teaching Christians not to be weird and how to talk about Jesus in everyday conversation. Because if we're honest, nine times out of ten, we're super weird, we're super awkward, and uh, we have the best intentions, but we do it in the strangest ways. And so we want to avoid that. I actually had an uh, encounter this uh, past Wednesday. I was at Meyer, and I was walking out, and all I was wearing was jeans and a jean jacket and T-shirts, pretty simple. And uh, as I'm walking out, this gentleman saw me from probably 30 feet away, and he saw me, and he paused, and he eyed me up and down, which is just kind of weird at first. And uh, from across Meyer, he hollers at me, I see you in those fresh threads. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, we're going here, I guess. And uh, he was in a real nice suit and stuff. And so I paused and I said, man, what are you all dappered out for? And so we, we talked for about three or four minutes and got to the fact that he was a financial advisor. And uh, so he was meeting with clients all over the city that day. And he said, well, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a pastor. I pastor a church over in the Dublin area. He said, man, that's incredible. He said, why don't we get together soon? And he said, you can, I can walk through with you just your financial condition as a family and, and just see how maybe I can help you. We can talk about that. And I was like, all right, Lord, we've got to capitalize on this. We've got to get better at spiritual conversations. And I said, all right. I said, we'll get together and talk about my financial condition if we can also talk about your spiritual condition. And he was like, let's do it. Let's do it. So this week we're supposed to get together and uh, talk through that. So there's opportunity everywhere I'm learning. It's just if we take advantage of that opportunity uh, to, to talk to people about Jesus. So 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be this morning. Five verses we're going to look at as we start this series that we've called uh, Own the Vision. So we do this every November, and it's really just meant to be a reminder for us on why God started this church and what He's called us to as a congregation. I'll explain that more in just a moment. But if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5, as Paul writes to the, the first letter to his church in Corinth. And this is what he says. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important, those are key words there, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Verse 5 and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for your word today, God. Thanks for our time. And Jesus, I pray now as we ask every week, Lord, that you'd give us open hearts and ears to receive your word this morning. That, Jesus, that we would leave here changed, God, because we encountered your spirit through your word. Father, draw us closer to Jesus today. May we leave here closer to him than we've ever been before. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I shared this story last year, but I want to share it again because I think it's worth repeating. But it's, it really stems on the reality that most of us could not live without computers. 
For most people in their vocation, what you do for work, you're interacting with a computer, whether a desktop or a laptop every day. Many of us have tablets that we're using every day. Uh, many of us, if you reach into your pocket or your purse right now, you're going to find one of these little devices, a cell phone. Computers are part of our lives. And one of my favorite stories is of how Steve Jobs started Apple Computers. If you've never heard that story before, it's pretty simple. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computers, really was the, the father of the modern computer revolution. And when he was just 21 years old is when he started Apple Computers. And at that time, I'm sure you've seen pictures where uh, computers were just these monstrous, massive vacuums that took up entire rooms. But Steve Jobs, with his buddy Steve, managed to take that monstrous mass and really uh, condense it down to the size where it could sit on top of a desktop. What's interesting is they took that invention that they had made, this desktop computer, they took it to Atari, y'all remember them? They took it to Atari and they offered it to, for Atari to buy it from them, not trying to make a ton of money, just knowing that this device could change the world. And they wanted the opportunity to continue their work, continue their research, and continue to invent. But sadly, Atari rejected their idea. They said, nah, we're not really interested in something like that. Can you imagine being that guy now? Then they took their invention over to HP. He, he, I can't even say it, so I'm not going to try. HP Computers, and uh, they went to them, and they said, hey, we've got this desktop computer. You need to, to buy this from us. We just want to continue our research. And HP said, nah, we're not really interested in something like that. We don't think it'll really catch on. But Steve Jobs and his buddy Steve alone could see the possibilities of what could happen with this. So with only $1,300 in a garage, they started Apple Computers, and the rest, as we know, is history. Here's a fun fact for you. It was actually named Apple Computers because Steve Jobs had a memory of when he was a child spending summers on an apple orchard. So he named his company that as a result. They soon discovered as things were growing that in order for this business to really take off, they needed some organizational management behind Apple Computers. So they went big and approached the then CEO of Pepsi at the time, the president of Pepsi, a guy named John Scully. Well, John Scully was a, a multimillionaire working in the operations of Pepsi, world-leading industry. Both Steves approach him and say, hey, we want you to come into our uh, system, what we're doing, Apple computers, and help us get this off the ground. And not surprisingly, because he's a sane man, Mr. Scully said, no, I'm not interested. But Steve Jobs wasn't going to take no for an answer. A few weeks later, he went back to Scully again, and again, Scully turned him down. But in a last-ditch effort, Steve Jobs was quoted as saying this to him. He presented the idea, presented the vision to him. Scully was still hesitant, but then Steve told him this quote. I think about this all the time. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, or do you want a chance to change the world? And friends, when I first read that quote last year, I think about what God has called us to as a congregation. You know, two and a half years ago when we started this thing in my living room up in Marysville, we knew God was not calling us just to start another church in Columbus. We knew God just didn't want us to just simply start another church service in town. There's, there's a lot of those. We knew God didn't want to just simply gather a group of people that would do a few good things for the community. Some of you have seen these pictures before, but just to show you some of our humble beginnings. Some of you are still here with us. Some of these people have, have moved on and they're not part of our church anymore. 
But I remember being in our living room with post-it notes all over the walls, just trying to come up with things to talk about because we didn't really know what this was going to look like and what God could actually do with a group of people that wanted to change the world. And that's the reality of what we believe God has called us to, is that as a church, we're, we're crazy enough to believe that God is going to allow us to change a portion of the spiritual landscape of Northwest Columbus for many generations. One of the most haunting things for me as a a Christian, not even a pastor, is that within a five-mile radius of where we comfortably sit in this room today, if we were to draw a circle, that there's over 200,000 people who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior right now. Right now, they're probably at Walmart, they're probably at a ball field, they're probably out to breakfast, at brunch, whatever they are. And right now, if we believe that this book is absolutely true, which we do, it means that they're headed for an eternity separated from Jesus. And so when we started this thing, the the question and really the reality that that we're just leaned into is, God, what could you do? Because we believe you've called us to change the spiritual landscape all around this city. And so the reason we do this vision series as a congregation is to really um, put the pendulum back where it needs to be, align our hearts again to what God has called us to do. And we're going to look at what we call our values as a church for the gospel, for the church, for the city over these next three weeks. And these are what we, we, we kind of use as the guardrails for what we do. When people come to us and they say, hey, like, we want to do this ministry. We should be involved in this thing. We ask ourselves the question, does it fall within the guardrails of what the Lord has called us to? There's good things and then there's best things. We want to stay in line with the best things so that we can do what the Lord has called us to do as a church. So when we say that one of our values is that we're for the gospel, What does that really mean? We've defined it this way, that we want to elevate and celebrate the finished work of Jesus and the Word of God. That's the primary thing that we believe that God has called us to as a congregation. Elevate and celebrate the finished work of Jesus, because that's the only place you can find hope, but also elevate and celebrate the Word of God. And I want to show us in 1 Corinthians 15, in these verses, why that's so important. Why is that primary? It's become cliche that churches are for the gospel, and I want to make sure that we don't ever get comfortable with that truth. So let's zoom in on this today. Why is the gospel of central importance to our church? And here's the very first point I want us to realize, and Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, that without the incarnation as part of the gospel, that there is no hope. Without the incarnation of Jesus, there is no hope. Look at verse 3 with me again. Paul says, for I passed on to you. So he's talking to this church in Corinth. As most important that I received. Here's what it is. That Christ died. You know, sometimes we take that that word Christ and we just think that that's like one of the names of Jesus, right? First name Jesus, last name Christ kind of a thing. But words in scripture are important. We're going to get there in just a second. I want us to explain this. Uh, I want to explain this to you in just a moment. But what is the incarnation? That might be a big church word that maybe you're not familiar with. Incarnation is simply uh, the, the scriptural reality that God somehow went from divine down to becoming a man. Incarnation is the process of that happening. Where God stepped out of heaven, Philippians 2, humbled himself and became a man. One of my friends told me this one time. He said, Aaron, it's this divine mystery that God was somehow in Jesus, 100% God and 100% man at the exact same time, being the only 200% being to ever walk on the face of the earth. It's hard for us to understand, but it's true. The scriptures talk about it. 
But why, why does that matter? Why does the incarnation really matter to us that Jesus stepped out of heaven and became a baby on our behalf? We're going to celebrate that at Christmas in just a few weeks. Why does that really matter? And it's this, that in order for God to die, which is the central point of the gospel, God had to first become a man. Why? Because for God to die for us, he had to become like us. Don't miss that this morning. For Jesus to give you and I what we needed, he had to become what we weren't, and that's sinless humans. Every other way that we had tried to get right with God was futile, so God came up with the way, it was the plan all along, to get us right with him, and that's by becoming a man. And friends, don't miss this as well. We talk about death often in the gospel because it's so important. But for the sin debt to be paid in full, it demanded death. Look at Romans right here, 6.23. What did Paul write to the church in Rome? He said, hey, for the wages of sin is death. That's just the, the scriptural truth that we have to wrap our minds around. But why death? It's because God's holiness demands holiness. God is a holy being, and that is an uncompromising characteristic of who he is. God does not budge on his holiness. Nobody's going to get to heaven and go, you know, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. God's not going to go, oh, it doesn't matter. You're fine. It's not going to work that way. Because God is holy, he demands that we are holy in our relationship with him as well. And so to restore that relationship, it demanded death, the penalty. I couldn't pay on my own. You couldn't pay on your own. You know why this is important? Because an unholy death would be insufficient to appease God's wrath. If I were to go and try to die for myself, to try to pay for my own sin debt, I'm an unholy being. Ask my wife, all right? I'm an unholy human. I could try, but it would be insufficient to meet God's holy standard. Think of it this way. If you were to go roll up to a car lot after church today, I mean, you found this beautiful car that you wanted to buy. It was $20,000. And you're talking to the salesman, and he's like, yeah, I mean, a sticker price, $20,000. That's how much this thing costs. That's the lowest I can go. And you whip out your wallet. I'll give you 50 bucks. What's the, what's the car salesman going to say to you? Are you kidding me? That's insufficient and an insult to the price of this car. Yet God is the same way if we take it to the spiritual level. Sometimes we think, well, I could get to God on my own. No, it's always going to be insufficient. That's why when people die apart from Jesus, and I hope this breaks our heart, that they have to suffer for eternity. Because an eternal God who's eternally holy demands that. And the only way to attempt to appease his wrath is to die apart from him in eternal death. And it's going to be continuous and perpetual. Why? Because God is eternal. You need an eternal being to die for you. That's why God had to come. Unholiness can never satisfy holiness. So what did God do to remedy this impossible situation? This is the gospel. Driven by love, God became like us. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He said, Jesus, who existed in the form of God, Right? Jesus is God, Genesis chapter 1, John chapter 1. We see it all over the, the scriptures. But he didn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited. You see, God could have stayed up in heaven and said, you know what, their problem, their fault, not mine. But God, driven by love, John 3.16 talks about that. What did he do? He emptied himself. God emptied himself. He set aside that divine nature momentarily and assumed the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. When he had come as 
a man. It's a divine mystery, friends, that we can't explain. God becoming like us. But look at 1 Corinthians 15.3 again. And we're going to get to that. Let's talk about that word Christ for a second. You know, in the Bible here, and I don't want us to miss this. If we believe that this book is divinely inspired, which we do, we believe that God somehow, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, took divine, or human authors and recorded divine truth, right? That means if this book is divine, it means that every word and letter and punctuation in this book had uh, influence by God. That's important. So if there's words that we read in the scriptures, we don't want to skip over them, but we need to pause on them and ask ourselves, what was God communicating through these certain things. And Paul very, very specifically uses the word Christ. He didn't say Jesus. He didn't say Lord. He used the word Christ. It's the Greek word Christos. Why, Why would he use that word so specifically? Because that, that word right there, Christos, means two things. It means the anointed one. What was Jesus anointed for? Anointed for a specific task? What was the task? Coming as a man to die for mankind. But it can also mean the, the sent one. What was Jesus sent to do? He was sent from heaven, Philippians 2, 6 and 7, to become a man, to ultimately die for mankind. Anointed and sent for the task of becoming a man to die for men. Completely embracing the human form. Luke 2, 7, Christmas verse. Praise Jesus, right? Then she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him tightly in a cloth. If y'all didn't know, P.S. parentheses, it's officially Christmas season in America, and I'm so happy, all right? November 1st, if you don't think that's right, you can repent and get right with Jesus at the end of the service, right? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2, God is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant. Isn't that a good way to describe you and me? I know who I am. And are going astray. Why? Because he is clothed in weakness, just like us. Why? Without the incarnation, God becoming man. Friends, there's no hope. That's why we have to be for the gospel and truly elevate and celebrate what Jesus did. Here's the second one. Without the death of Jesus, there's no hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. That Christ did what? He died. When Jesus died for my sin and for your sin, He cleared out the sin debt that we owed to God. God demanding a holy, sinless sacrifice, doing what we couldn't do on our own, so God did it for us, giving us Himself. And when Jesus hung on that tree for you and for me, the curse of Adam was laid upon him. You ever thought about that? Like, look, look at this verse, Galatians 3.17. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By what? By becoming a curse for us. Because it's written, cursed is everybody who hangs on a tree. So when Jesus hung there, sin past, present, future of mine, of yours, and every human that ever existed or will be born was placed on Jesus' shoulders. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Isaiah wrote that Jesus bore our sickness. Your Bible might say bore our sin, carried our pain. We regarded him as stricken, but he was struck down by God. You ever, like God's wrath poured out upon himself. Try to explain that. God's wrath against sin, he, he turned and poured it out against himself, against Jesus on that cross. My favorite illustration to really try to begin to wrap our minds around this is of the Hoover Dam. The Hoover Dam, if you're you're unfamiliar, on the lake side, I I found this the other day, I thought it was fascinating, holds 10 trillion gallons of water. That's just a number, unless you put it like this way. 
that means that we could cover the entire state of Connecticut 10 feet deep in water. That's how much water is held on the lake side of the Hoover Dam. That's a whole lot of water. Now imagine that you're standing in about, I don't know, a quarter mile in front of the Hoover Dam, and you're looking up at just the magnificence of just this man-made thing that's just incredible to see. But all of a sudden, as you're looking at this, you hear a sound, a little bit of an echo, and that dam begins to break. And there's a crack that starts to form, and all of a sudden, man, that thing just shatters. The concrete goes everywhere, metal goes flying, and those 10 trillion gallons of water become just coming down straight at you, and you're standing there completely hopeless. You can't run because you can't outrun that much water. You are out of luck. And as that water is barreling its way down towards you, all of a sudden, the ground in front of you opens up wide and sucks down all of that water right before it hits you. That's what Jesus did on the cross. The eternal wrath of God coming down on mankind. Friends, eternal. Don't miss that. But Jesus soaked it all up, bore it all upon himself. And in that moment, when Jesus cried, it is finished, John 19, verse 30. Sin's grip was released on you and I, and we were set free from the power of sin and the power of hell because God poured out his wrath against himself. The spiritual forces of darkness, of hell, were completely disarmed all through God becoming a baby and then a man and then dying for us. This is the greatest news in the universe. Colossians 2.15, Paul said that God disarmed the rulers, talking spiritual, the rulers and authorities, and watch this, disgraced them publicly. Think about this. Jesus defeated Satan by dying. <laughs> Have you ever thought, like, that doesn't happen that way. You defeat an enemy by vanquishing him, but God disgraced Satan. How? Because he died to defeat him. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, but that's what God chose to do, and he triumphed over him. Why does the death of Jesus matter? Because if Jesus didn't die, we're still in our sin. If Jesus didn't die, we're still guilty of our sin. If Jesus didn't die, we are still lost. If Jesus didn't die, friends, we are hopeless, and there's nothing we could do about it. But because he died, we can actually find hope. Because Jesus died, people can find hope. But without the death of God, there's no hope for people. That's why we're for the gospel. Here's the last one, the final, and this is the most important. Without the resurrection, there's no hope. Look at verse 4. It says that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The entire gospel message hinges on this verse. The gospel rises and falls on whether or not Jesus came back from the dead. Because, friends, if Jesus did not come back from the dead, if he didn't walk out of that tomb 2,000 years ago, we might as well close up shop right now, leave everything set up because we don't need it anymore, drive home, get on your comfy pants, and eat a plate of nachos because you're hopeless. We've got nothing to hope in anymore. But because Jesus died, and he did, it changes everything. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. What separates Christianity from every other faith system in the world? A risen Savior. You can go to the tomb of every other faith leader on the planet and still see a tombstone sitting there and some sort of bag of bones in the ground. You go to Jesus' tomb, you've got to look around for something because he isn't there. That's what separates us from everything else. He died, but then he resurrected from the dead. He poured, God poured out the sin, uh, the, the, the wrath of sin upon Jesus. Jesus dies, but then he comes back to life and in rising on that third day neutralizes defeats and eliminates the sting of death paul said in first corinthians 15 54 and 55 oh death where is your sting 
grave, where is your victory? Friends, that's one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible because Jesus walked out of that grave and He's alive today. We have the opportunity to be alive for eternity. That's what gives us hope. There's hope beyond tomorrow because of what Jesus did for us. Now let's land the plane with this thought. In all reality, why is this so important? Like why does this consume, and I hope you see that this consumes everything that we do. I hope you can see that we're we're passionate about this. I'm not up here this morning going, Jesus rose from the dead and died for you. No, because this matters. This is important. This is the reason we tell people about this stuff. We try to share stories of where we're trying to engage people with the gospel. Why? We live in a world with everything. You thought about that? Literally everything. We're at the peak of technology right now. We got like incredible, some, some of y'all got cars where you flip this little button and it air conditions you. You seen that? Like you sit in your seat and your whole seat's air conditioned. I'm driving around with the kind where you got to crank the window down still. It's incredible, this world that we, we currently live in. Peak of technology, best cars, best houses, amazing jobs. Some of the cool, it is Christmas tree, Little Debbie Christmas tree season here in America right now. Like, thank you, Jesus, right? We live in the best times. You ever thought about this? Even if you're at the lower end of the economic ladder, you're still in the top richest 2% of people on the entire planet. The, 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 I think the, the poverty income in America is like in the, the mid-low 30s. I think it's 36.5, something like that. Even at $36,500 per year, you know you're still in the top 2% richest people on the face of the earth. We live in the best times. Yet you know the majority of conversations that you have with people who do not know Jesus are hopeless? It's always in the pursuit of the next best thing. I gotta, I gotta get the better job. I gotta get the better car. I gotta get the better house. I gotta get the better relationship. I gotta get all these better things. Why, why do we do that? Because people are hopeless. They have no hope. There's no hope beyond what exists in this life and what they engage in in this life. And people are always trying to gain fulfillment and purpose and meaning and stature from things in this world. But the problem is, is that temporary things are insufficient to find fulfillment and hope. Why is that? Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that, that God is like etched in our heart. What, what does that mean? It means, uh, I think it was Pascal that said there's that eternal void inside of all of us that we try to fill with other things. But the problem is when you try to fill um, an eternal void with finite things, it's insufficient. So what were we created to do? The eternal void can only be filled by an eternal being. Enter Jesus. That's why we think Jesus is important. That's why we think Jesus matters, because if there's no hope beyond this life, there's no hope. And we believe with all of our hearts that when we say that this church is for the gospel, friends, that simply means that in everything, we believe true hope is found in Jesus. We believe lasting hope is found in Jesus. And we believe living hope is found in Jesus. And as long as the Lord lets us, we're going to make sure that we tell every person that we possibly can about that and hopefully encourage and mobilize you to do the same. That's why we're for the gospel at this church. It's not a cliche. It's not something we just say. It's something we want to live out so that people know that hope is found in Jesus Christ. It's why our name is Living Hope. Living Hope found only in Jesus.
Friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today's your day. Cry out to him from where you sit. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Jesus, invade my space. And on the authority of God's word in Romans 10, it says that Jesus will change your life, not only in the now, but in the forever. It's a dual thing that's awesome, and I hope you'll participate in it. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, Father, thanks for our time this morning, for our time in your word. God, make our hearts ache for the gospel and the people that don't know you. God, I pray that you begin to give us the spiritual eyes that we need to see the opportunities you're laying in our path. That God, we'd never become come comfortable, Lord, just coming and doing church. <clears throat> but that this would just serve as the launch pad, the platform, and the springboard into where we spend our Monday through Saturday. God, to be a beacon of hope. God, to have those conversations where people's eternities can be altered. And God, we pray that we never become stagnant, Lord, in wanting to be that transforming spiritual presence all across this region of Columbus, God. Thank you for what you've done in us so far, Lord. Thank you for what you're inviting us into in the future. Thanks for allowing us to be part of the story that you're writing in Living Hope. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.